like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Now, in this episode, I will be continuing my look at uh, Philip Dick's 1967 novel, The Zap Gun, uh, originally called Project Plowshares. And in this episode, I'll be looking at chapters 9 through 15 of the book, which will take us to about the midway point in the story. Now, in the first part of this novel, we were introduced to our protagonist, Lars Powder Dry, who is a weapons designer for the Western powers in a Cold War that are kind of fighting a, a simulated Cold War with Peep East. The core concept in this novel is that there are no weapons really in this world. There's uh, the development of weapons, but it's all imaginary. It's just the what designs of weapons are made. They're demonstrated to the people in kind of uh, a fake news uh display where robots will be killed posing as humans robots posing as humans will be killed and then after that a group of six average people uh they're called commodities will then plowshare them which means essentially they'll take the weapon design and transform them into uh consumer goods consumer goods that that may not really look that much like the original um weapons it could be everything from an ashtray to a toy uh, to two other kind of knickknacks for the house. And I think all this this whole novel is a commentary on Dick's views of the Cold War as kind of a false war where there's these weapons that are developed that are never going to be used. They're just there to kind of one up. And, on the, and then how this corresponds with, with consumer society. There's a lot of other Philip Dick themes here, such as uh, the alienated... Uh, the man alienated his job. Even someone with maybe a high position doesn't feel happy in his job. We have the same kind of dysfunctional sexual relationships between people. We have uh, drug use, especially in the, as we get to the middle of the book, we learn more about drug use. And um, anyways, there's a lot of interesting things going on in this novel, so I urge you to to read it. it it's quite a lot of fun. Um, and it's a, it's a good thing because this novel, and I think Counterclock World, which we'll look at next, are, are kind of funner novels and lighter novels before we get into his really heavy stuff of the late 60s such as Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep or Ubik or The Maze of Death or Galactic Pot Healer. So anyways, we're going to pick up with Chapter 9 right now. And in Chapter 9, we are reintroduced to what at first seemed like a minor char character in the story. That man is Shirley G. Febbs. Shirley G. Febbs, we were met introduced to, I think, back in Chapter 3 and just briefly in one chapter. And he has just been chosen by the government to be at Concomity. He is the average typical American based on his consumer patterns, and that's why he was chosen. He's a bit of an odd cat, though, because he thinks he's a true weapons expert. So he comes at this job with delusions of grandeur, thinking he can plowshare better than any of the other commodities, maybe even dominate the, the system, maybe even influence higher levels in government. He's very excited to start his new job because he spends most of his free time studying uh, magazines of weapons. And I think that's a part of this story is that there's all this focus on developing weapons that are never going to be used, but the focus of 
excuse me, the focus on developing weapons leads to leads to a culture of people who consume this stuff and are obsessed with weapons. And Febs is one of those guys. He's also a racist, a nationalist, a, a xenophobe, uh, he, and he's he kind of comes off as a typical right wing sort of survivalist type who you know likes to collect weapons. Now there's really no weapons in the world, but he collects his knowledge about weapons. That's what he collects, and he has all these other grotesque ideas. Now he's coming bringing those to government. And in chapter nine, we see him basically on his way to Washington on a train. And most of this chapter deals with him talking to just another passenger on the train about weapons, about how he's going to Washington. He's not supposed to say he's a commodity because that's, a, that's a, an undisclosed figure, but he does talk about how he's going to the government and he impresses the man he's talking to. But we see his, his big delusions here. Um, and the heart of this chapter is, is Febs talking about something called the perfect weapon. And it's something that hasn't been developed. Now, earlier there was this talk of like the ultimate weapon. And I think Lars Powder Dry and his friend Jack were talking about the ultimate weapon. This would be, and the question was, why don't they just develop the ultimate weapon? Why play this game of building sap guns? You know, these different, uh, you know, laser pistols and, and evolution guns and all these other devices. Actually, we find out later on that they're getting these ideas essentially from comic books. But why develop these? Why not just build the biggest nuke? And that, I mean, the problem is that would sort of end the game, right? If you develop that, there's really nowhere to go from there. And to keep the facade of, of a security state going, they need to do that. And I, I think that's a lot of the moment which is the heart of the novel is this idea that the whole security apparatus, the whole security state, the military industrial complexes is kind of a joke. There's really nothing there. There's even secret police who are spying on the other side, doing, making fake weapons as well. It, it's... It's, it's rather humorous when you think about it, and, and maybe it belittles the actual threat and danger of the actual Cold War. But I can understand Dick in the 60s feeling this kind of ennui about the Cold War. And that, that's a theme we see in some, even some of his stories from the, the mid-60s, like in uh, the one about the time travelers who get caught in a loop. I think it's called A Little Something for Us, Tempunats. You know, just, uh, just some fatigue, you know, the way we were probably feeling some Trump fatigue now in, in the media. So anyways, that's the kind of the ultimate weapon. That they're talking about this. But Feb's idea is the, the perfect weapon. And for him, the perfect weapon, and I think at one point he calls it a zap gun or someone else calls it a zap gun. And this is sort of where the title comes from. And this is a weapon that can be fired once and can target anyone individually on the entire planet and basically kill him. So it's, it's the unstoppable assassin's weapon, essentially. And he talks about this with this, this passenger he's traveling with. Here's how he describes it. It meant simply weapons with the most precise effect conceivable. In theory, it was possible to imagine a weapon. As yet unbuilt, probably untranced of by Mr. Lars himself still, he would slay one given individual at a given instant and in a given intersection in one particular given city in Peep East. Or in West Block, for that matter. Peep East, West Block, what's the difference did it make? The important thing would be the, the existence of the weapon itself, the perfect weapon. And after he talks to this guy for a while, he is more and more excited about going to Washington because he wants to get his hands on the perfect weapon. And so he, a bit like Lars, Lars has been feeling this ennui about his work, and he wants to 
redirect the work to being more useful. And he's not a violent person, but he somehow feels making weapons that are just going to be plowed shared that don't really do anything, that aren't even real, is kind of banal. And he'd like to have a little more purpose in life. And Febs here is kind of suggesting one way that he also wants to have real weapons being made. He doesn't want to just be in the job of plowsharing. For him, that's, that's kind of the easy part of the job. So um, that's, that's chapter nine. It's, it's an interesting contrast, I think, with Lars. Now, Lars is going to find out that he's in a position where he actually does have to make a weapon. So his, his ennui is taken care of. But uh, Febs will still be a bit of a loose cannon in the second half of the story. So chapter 10, I actually really love this chapter and I love this subplot. We were kind of introduced to another side character and his name is Vincent Klug. The setting of this is, is Lars back with Jack, his friend who, like Lars designs the weapons and he does it by going into this trance state with drugs and he's able to pull these weapons kind of out of the cloud. And he's really pulling them from popular culture, but he thinks he's sort of getting them from somewhere. And Jack is the one who then develops a prototype, which will be used for kind of propaganda efforts. And then they'll be plowshared. Um, now, while there, he, he runs into this guy, Vincent Klug. And Vincent Klug is this kind of a toy salesman. He, he wants, or a toy designer, I want to say. He, he, he wants to use the manufacturers, the artifacts that Jack has access to, to produce a run of toys. Um, and the toy he shows off is the Citadel toy that was in a short story Dick wrote a little bit earlier called War Game. And this, is, this was a story that about like kind of customs agents who have to play with these toys that are brought in from another planet and to see if these toys are safe. And they, they see a toy that where soldiers attack a citadel and it defends and you know it kind of consumes the soldiers and then it will reset. Klug wants this to show the futility of war. And I think that's why in the original story War Games it's also eventually banned because it, it seemed to undermine the, the idea that you could win a war. Right. And what I love about this is Dick here actually starts to think about the social utility of, of toys and takes toys seriously. They're not just really for kids. They, are, they have a function in, 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 in life and it's something we need, right? So in, in a, such a work-based world, we need toys, right? And especially in a post-scarcity world where work is not guaranteed, we need people who know how to play. And so the fact that we take kids and we say, oh, it's good to play when you're young, but at some point you have to get buckled down and study and work hard, and then they forget how to play. And by the time they get adults, they don't really know how to do that anymore. But, you know, kind of revitalizing the toy is something that has meaning in one whole, over the course of one whole life is kind of interesting. Yeah, actually having a philosophy of toys, I guess. Sorry, I'm looking for the quote. Oh, here it is. I, I found it. Um, Lars had heard the toy maker expound this on several occasions. Life itself was unendurable and hence had to be ameliorated. As a thing in itself, it could not actually be lived. There had to be some way out. Mental, moral, and physical hygiene depended on it. Right. So this is kind of what how Klug is, you know, justifying the need to have toys. And they even talk about the the purpose the value of of playing war games at all and especially a war game like this and and Klug's response to this is well it teaches the futility of war it does it does have a didactic purpose above and beyond just the playing of it but anyways Klug wants like a run of 500 of these to be made and then he'll sell them 
And they sort of reject it. They say it's not worth the risk. Instead, they want toys that can be simply made and made cheaper. And he says, give me a toy with just one moving part and I'll think of, of developing it. So they're asking for more simple toys. There's another interesting conversation they have where Klug tells how kind of lovable and likable Lars Powder Dry and the other people involved in this weapons making process are. And they're kind of taken aback by that, that a weapons manufacturer can be can be a lovable figure and, and beloved by the people. Um, and I guess that shows the success of this whole uh, facade that's in it. And that's something that going, that's going on in this story is here we have like a, a lie that's not really seriously maintained, a lie that's obviously a lie. And that's part of why Lars doesn't like his job because it's like not even the fibs, not even the lying is taken very seriously. So anyways, that's a really good chapter, I think. And it, and it gets to gets us thinking about uh, the social function and social utility of, of something as simple as, as a toy. Now in chapter 11, we're going to get kind of to the main plot of, of what turns this novel in a new direction, right? So up to this point, we've really just been learning about the setting and, and being bored with Lars and his job as he goes through the day-to-day -day actions. He, he goes through, by this point, we've seen the whole state, all the stages in the process, right? And he's going uh, to Washington to go to essentially go to a meeting. He, does, he he's allowed to sit at the like the council of the West Block, you know, security councils and things because he's fairly high ranking. But he doesn't really go because you know he just designs, you know, made up weapons. So he doesn't really take that job seriously. But he has that position there. Now we also get in here a discussion about what's happened to the kind of the political climate on Earth, and both in the East and in the West. Now, interestingly, Washington has a Kremlin, so they took they, they have this. It's like a new place where the powerful meet. But like Congress and the White House and these things are still there and they're just kind of babbling on. It's, it's like how Augustus, when he took power in the Roman Empire, he kept the Senate there talking or how in medieval Japan, when the shoguns and the bukufu came to power there, the military class, they kept the emperor in Kyoto or in the court, but they, they started doing their own they were, they were the ones who were really in charge. So it's an interesting, you know, idea that when you have a revolutionary takeover of power, it's maybe not always best to violently overthrow the old way. You know, you can keep them there and give them a job, right? And they'll be content. And as long as they don't realize that they're not doing anything, they're, they're not going to oppose your rule. And, you know, do people really want to have power or do they just want to have a job is, is maybe the question we, we should ask here. Now, while he travels, he gets news that there's a new satellite in, in the air, and, and it's not from the West Block, um, so it must, it must be from the East, but it's revealed pretty quickly that it's not from people's, people's East either. It's not from the communists. So what is it? It must be an alien satellite, then. If no one else can account for where this comes from, it must be an alien satellite. And he gets really depressed at this, and, and I think at some level he knows that he can't really help much because he doesn't make real weapons, right? He's not a true weapons manufacturer and the earth is kind of helpless and defenseless. And since he's already bored anyways with his job, he starts to actually consider uh, killing himself. Marin, his lover, his mistress, contacts him and, and talks to him about it and says, no, don't kill yourself. That's the wrong idea. What you really need to do is, is take charge of this, you know, see where this goes. Actually go to the meeting. You have a right to go there. And he 
you know, he actually has to go and get a legal writ to clarify his right to be there to get through the security in the Kremlin and to take a seat at the table. But Marin says, do it. Now's your opportunity to do this. And she's been urging him from earlier in the novel to actually do something aggressive with his, with his life. And that means really playing the game of power politics. Don't just be a, a, a side, uh, like a fool. Um, at one point early in the novel, Lars talked about people like him as essentially uh, fools in a court, right? Who just entertain and display and say things, but don't actually have any, any real meaning. So chapter 12, he, he gets this legal writ, which gives him this right to kind of get through the checkpoints and to get into... The Kremlin in Washington, D.C., and Festoon, Washington. That's the name. I'm not quite sure where Festoon comes from. It must be some new speak that I'm, I'm missing out on. Fed, federal, nah, I'm not sure. But um, it, the, the real title of the character is Festoon, Washington, D.C. And it has a Kremlin, which I think is Dick just having a little bit of fun with us. He gets his permission, but he goes with his Dr. Lotz. And the Dr. Lotz always hangs out with him because he's the one who prepares him chemically and, and physically, physiologically for these trance states he goes to. This is so important for his job. Uh, he gets permission, but Lotz is not allowed in. And there, the meeting goes on, and then it's about the satellite. He actually comes a little bit late. And there's a woman there from Peep East, kind of a representative from Peep East. And originally they want to blame the East, but it's, it's pretty revealed pretty quickly that the satellite is not from the communist side, and it's not from the West. In fact, I think at one point they said, like, Tell us where how to shoot this down if it's not yours, and they actually give them the the location to verify where it is, and said you do it. So it kind of proved that wasn't their satellite. Um, and then the idea comes up like, well, we have Lars. We have Lars Powderdry. He makes weapons. He's a weapons designer. So why can't he get a weapon to defeat the satellite? And they want him to try. And then they work out that he's going to work with Lilo Topchev. Lilo Topchev is Lars's counterpart in Peep East. She's a much younger woman, a Russian, who goes into her own trance states to get weapons. And, and, and she just has Lars's job, but she's in people's, people's East. And they think that these two people together, maybe, maybe not likely, but maybe possibly can, can work together to solve this problem and, and, and save the world from these satellites. And I think by this point, there's another, a second satellite has come or maybe that's in the next chapter but eventually there's a numerous satellites around earth threatening earth and in need of being shot down by an earth that has found it doesn't need weapons anymore because you know i mean why don't they have weapons well if you're not using them right why not just plowshare them i guess that's what dick is saying here um if you think about how much money is spent in the world today on weapons and how much of it is actually used i don't know I really don't have those numbers off the top of my head, obviously, but a lot of money is spent on military equipment that, that probably is just practiced on. Now, you can say peace through strength, right? You need to have a strong army to maintain order, and, and therefore it doesn't matter if they're fired or not. But Dick's at the time really looking at the military budget and saying, it's, this is preposterous to, to spend money on this stuff when you could just pretend you're in the Cold War or the arms race. So anyways, chapter 12 is this meeting in the Kremlin uh, in Festoon, Washington. Chapter 13, Lars goes to see this Russian spy that approached him earlier in the novel, a man named Kaminsky. It's there that he learns about the second satellite that that's comes. They discuss the aliens. They discuss the Otopchev. 
And the realization that's kind of frightening for, for everyone, of course, is the whole era of plowsharing is over because now there's actually an external threat. And with an a third external threat that's not understood, that's not in on the game, you know, like before both sides were playing the same game. So you, you could have plowsharing. Now the whole plowsharing thing is over, that there are going to be weapons. And Lars's job is going to change. He's going to be someone who's going to be making weapons that kill people or kill aliens or whatever. Um, now, his main reason for being there with Kaminsky is he wants this picture of Lilo Topchev. And, you know, he, he, there's really a lot of sexual tension, even early in the novel, about him. He's fascinated by her. He saw a picture of her and was kind of intrigued by her. You know, wanted to know more about her. Um, so he wants a picture of her. But the point of this meeting is just how much everything has changed, how nothing's going to be the same anymore. Quote, so not only do we face the presence of two alien satellites orbiting our world, Lars realized, but we have us to endure under the not prepared for stress, a return to the unsheathed sword of the past. So all the covenants and pacts and treaties, the locker at the Greyhound bus terminal at Topeka, Kansas, Gelder, Gelmenshof in Berlin, Fairfax itself, it's a delusion. And we both, East and West, shared it together. It's as much our fault as theirs, the willingness to believe and take the soft road out. Look at me now, he thought, in this crisis, I'm headed straight for the Soviet embassy. So, yeah, the good old days are over. The days of plowshare is over. And it's not because the system broke down. It's because an external threat came in. But first, he goes back to his room to sleep um, before preparing to meet Lila Topchev. He wakes up, and he's surrounded by secret police types. He doesn't quite know where they're from. And they start, like, packing his clothes and preparing him to, to go away. And they drag him away. Um, the people on the ship that are taking him to Silo Topchev. They're, they're taking him to Iceland. That's like the neutral ground where they're going to work together. Um, they have various conversations on the way, much about how the whole, they're probably going to be all killed by these satellites. The world's kind of ending. Um, we're reminded that Lars isn't in a fight not only for his own life, but the life of, of all people. He's also reminded that if he fails, that more individually, he, his life will be in danger, that this is a, if he fails, He'll probably be killed, and that's something he goes into this knowing as well. It's actually quite serious. Um, and there's one interesting conversation here, too, about the burden of cogs. This is a class-based society. We're on the top of cogs. They're the people who kind of know this lie, and they kind of runs the system. And below you have the persaps, which is short for pure saps. This is an old Philip Dick trope. He does it again and again. He sometimes changes the names, but usually when you have two classes... In a novel like this, it's about knowledge. Knowledge is what defines the classes more than income or money. The problem with and why this moment in history that Lars is facing is so critical is it's going to disrupt that class system anymore. And so now you can't pretend to be great. You actually have to be great. And if you're not great, then the system falls apart. But the problem is they're not great. They're cogs just by luck, by chance, by a bit of knowledge that they have. And here's what Dick writes, quote, they knew as Lars himself knew that their destiny lay in the hands of halfwits. It was as simple as that. Halfwits in both East and West, halfwits like Marshal Pavanovich and General Nitz, halfwits he realized, and he felt his ears sear and flame red, like himself. It was the sheer mortality of leadership that frightened the ruling circles. The last Superman, that final man of iron, had been Joseph Stalin, since then puty mortals, job holders who made deals. And yet the alternative was frighteningly worse. And they all, including even the percepts, knew that on some level, 
they were seen in the form of these three alien satellites in the sky. They're alternative now. And at that, they arrive in, in Iceland. And then that takes us to chapter 15. Um, so he's at Iceland for the meeting. And this is a good scene where we see him going through the Soviet bureaucracy, going through this, all the guards and the, and the police and the secret police. And everyone's checking his passports and documents. It's this very bureaucratic look. Um, and that's all that really happens here. Uh, well, he does meet Topchev in this chapter, but more important than the meeting with Topchev herself, Lilo Topchev, is this comic book that he runs into. He sees these KVB, that's like the new, like the KGB, but no, oh, it's KVB. These are the Soviet police. He's reading this comic book called The Blue Cephalopod Man from Titan. And this is our first clue that that there's some relationship between these popular culture comic books and whatever Lars has been doing in his trans states. For instance, quote, in episode three, I guess issue three, I mean, I don't know why they're called episodes here, but they're like comic books. Um, maybe they're, maybe they're video. Um, but quote, in episode three, the terminal section of the comic book, another machine peculiarly familiar to him, he could not precisely place it, however, was brought into play by the cunning assistance and timely of timely Harry North. The blue cephalopod man triumphed once again, this time over things from the sixth planet of Orionis. And it's a good thing, too, because those particular things were an abomination. The artist had outdone himself. And so he's, he, he, he looks at these comic books and sees this man reading it, but he's, he's drawn to it, and he's not quite sure why. And it's revealed later on that, really, this is where he's getting his weapons ideas from, from these comic books. And that's why they're this gaudy kind of sci-fi devices like an evolution gun and laser beams and zap guns. It's... Um, kind of silly Pulp Fiction kind of devices. He, when he kind of makes this connection to his weapons designs, he thinks maybe he was plagiarized. Like maybe the designer of the comic book <clears throat> had saw the weapon you know, on display before it was plowed shared and then copied it, but he, he can't really be sure. Um, then he finally does meet Lilo Topchev and they talk about drugs. A lot of their early conversation is simply about drugs. He quickly falls in love with Leo Topchev. This is something Dick does all the time, you know, when the older man find, you know, runs into the younger, intriguing woman, you know, they're going to instantly fall in love. And they, they have a little conversation. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the encounter with, with Leo Topchev and the rest of what happens as they try to figure out how to make an actual weapon in the next episode. So this takes us to about the midway point of the novel, chapter 15. In the next episode, I'll look at... I don't know how many chapters, eight or nine or so, uh, as we reach get towards the climax of, of the story. So anyways, um, good stuff in here. I'm, I'm really interested in the, the concept of maybe the ultimate weapon. Uh, is, is Feb's right that the ultimate weapon is the one that can, can essentially be the perfect assassin's weapon? Uh, what about toys? What is the function of toys in our society? And, and do you agree with me that maybe we need toys to... To remember how to play, especially in an era when maybe more of us will be forced to find meaning in life outside of work. Um, anyways, that's th those are some of the main themes that, that I think is interesting in this. A lot of it is, is, is pushing the plot forward, though, with especially with pushing forth this meeting of Lars and, and Lilo Topchev and this need to suddenly build a weapon that's actually going to, to work. So I'll leave it at that. Um, please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. 
Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time when I look at part three of, of where we go through part three of my review and thoughts on the Zapka. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.